If you could shake a sloth's hand, how much force do you think they would exert? I honestly did not know. I said, well, they don't appear to be strong animals. They don't look strong because their their limbs are quite long and they're thin. They're not bulky and musculature like you think of a weightlifter. And I said, I don't know. And she said, they could crush your hand if they were capable of shaking your hand. And I said, well, how is it that their grip force is so strong? And she said, I don't know the answer, but that's what I need you for. We would look at a sloth and, and because they move so slowly, most people automatically assume that all of their muscles are slow twitch muscles, that they must be extremely slow contracting. But what we learned was interesting. Uh, sloths actually do have fast twitch muscles. And that was a surprising result for a number of people because just by the appearance, their muscles are quite dark. They're dark red in color. And most often that indicates aerobic muscle fibers. They're using lots of oxygen. In this podcast, I'm sharing my passion and curiosity for soft robotics, where we share inspiring stories about the work we do and how we can push the limit. I am Mara Dweeney, and this is Soft Robotics Podcast. Support for this show comes from Science Robotics Journal. I really find Science Robotics to be a great resource for reliable and tangible research where we can really push the limit of the science we do in robotics. Great way to stay up to date with the published article is checking out the released monthly issue. All the links will be included in each episode description. We will also happen to have a regular conversation on the most published science robotic articles where also you can contribute with your question and thoughts about the research. Thanks, Science Robotics, for sponsoring Soft Robotics Podcast. Hello, Mike. Thanks so much for your last podcast. Uh, such honor to have you here today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Mike. So maybe I would like to ask you first how you would like to define yourself for people who maybe first time listening to you. How would you like to define yourself? I am a what is known as a functional morphologist or a biomechanist. So I study anatomy and how it works. So think about how a machine is put together and how does it work. I do the same thing, but applying it to biological systems, namely those of animals and their anatomy and how they use their anatomy. Excellent. I, I really like the term functional morphologist. This is something I use of robotics. I think we, did it, we don't have this term, but it's really fascinating because what do you mean about functional morphologist here? So anatomy is the study of structure. Physiology is the study of function. So what a functional morphologist does is it combines the two, and then it also looks for an evolutionary history of the animal to combine with that. So how did this evolve? How did the animal come to use their anatomy in this way? And we look at that as a modification or a specialization. Another word that you're probably familiar with is adaptation. But adaptations are, are very difficult to verify. And a lot of times we are working from these just so type of stories. So a functional morphologist goes beyond and they collect empirical functional data to understand exactly why the animal has the form that it does and why it functions as it does. And in my case, I'm particularly interested in locomotion. 
And with respect to locomotion, I focus typically on animals that climb or dig. And with respect to the arboreal taxa that I study, I'm also interested in suspension. And that is where sloths and opossums and certain species of monkey come into play for my research program. Excellent. Maybe I want to ask you the first question because I really like how you are so passionate about what you're doing. And the first question for you, I think this is something I am really love this kind of research line because I think no, not many people investigating that the question that you already asked, how evolution or biological evolution here come up with this design, like in different example, how this happened? And I, I, maybe the first question here, how nature can come up with such design like that? And what, what's the purpose behind that also? Well, I think we have to get back to the fundamental tenets of uh, Darwinian evolution, right? And the simple idea there is selection. And you could simply say it as survival of the fittest, if you wish. And so the idea is what genes and what traits are advantageous for a species to continue to propagate in their lineage. And the traits that I'm interested in are physical ones, anatomical ones. In particular, I focus on muscles and bones and tendons and how all of these tissues work together as an integrated system. So whether it's an advantage for a specific type of arboreal lifestyle, in, in the case of sloths, um, energy conservation is critical to their survival because they have a, an energy poor diet and all of their physiological parameters that we could study and we have studied match that same imperative of energy conservation. So low metabolic rate, low body temperature, which is unusual for a placental mammal like you and me, uh, low rates of digestion. It takes roughly three and a half weeks for them to digest one meal of leaves, which amounts to about 20 grams of leaf matter. So their stomachs are always full. It takes quite a long time to be able to pass that through. But in that process, they're getting very little nutrition. Leaves are full of cellulose. They're waxy. So they have to ferment this material over weeks and weeks to be able to extract some glucose. So if you think about them not having a large energy reserve and them not having lots of readily available energy to perform locomotion, they've adapted over evolutionary time the solution to conserve energy and still have a means to move. And they've done it by going below branch, by moving slowly and moving intermittently, which we look at as adaptive behavior in order for them to conserve energy. So I think that's an important point to consider here for your listeners is evolution looks for the simplest solution to conserve energy. And when we think of a sloth or we think of us walking as upright bipeds, we're moving in a way that either doesn't allow us to lose the energy in the first place, or we have mechanisms by which we can recover that energy. And sloths, unfortunately, don't have the ability to make use of those type of mechanics, at least as we understand it today. Uh, we do have some ongoing studies where we're looking at exchanges of mechanical energy, potential energy, kinetic energy, to determine if they actually do have the ability to exchange between the two in some type of pendular mechanics, which would be very efficient for them. Um, but as we understand the system thus far, they either do not have this ability or they have limited ability to do this. So their locomotion is driven by muscular work. And you might 
understand that physiologically, contracting muscles consume a decent amount of energy. That's not cost effective. So they have have modifications to their physiology whereby their muscles can use anaerobic energy systems, which are, are more cost effective in terms of a biochemical process, but they don't provide a large number of ATP, the energy substrate that muscles need to contract. So it's not efficient in that regard. They're getting a low yield of ATP, but if you move in a way that's intermittent or inconsistent, then your muscles don't require that much energy to be able to contract. So they've matched those two things through evolution, the physiology of the muscles and the way in which they contract in their metabolism and their movement patterns. So hence we say that's an adaptive way to move or, or it's a functional adaptation to the way in which they're using their musculature. Maybe before going more detail, because I'm really fascinated about their research about sloths. And, and I think the question is, because you work in zoology and I think biomechanics, how you get interested in this kind of a study? Because some creature may be mysterious for us, or maybe there's no interest to do a more investigation and reveal the secrets and, and this fascinating aspect. How you get interested in that? And who decided that? I'm just curious, how does this process go for you? to choose, let's go for this direction and this creature, for example. I will take you back to the year 2012. And I had the opportunity to do some field work in Costa Rica. Now, I wasn't there to work with two-toed and three-toed sloths. I was actually there to work with opossums. And we had some questions regarding the tail of opossums. So these are didelphid marsupials of the Americas. The tail of an opossum is either fully prehensile, which means it has the ability to completely support its body weight, and that permits the animal to do um, a, a variety of complex arboreal maneuvering, from cantilevering to bridging, uh, traversing gaps, and using their tail as a, a safety line, essentially, because they keep it partially flexed around a branch where they're walking on top of branches. And we call that chronograde locomotion when the animal is above the branch. So the tail fascinated me because we looked at it as a fifth appendage. It's like another arm or another leg, and it has gripping and grasping ability. So I wanted to know structurally, how is the tail composed? And we focused on the musculature. So we studied how the muscles are organized, and we also study the contractile properties of the muscles themselves. So this behavior suspension was something that really attracted me to opossums. And that came about because I worked with them when I was a postdoc back in the year 2008. And the way in which you handle an opossum is you grab it by its tail. And then it wraps its tail around your hand and it, it can suspend itself from the tail. So now fast forward to the year 2015. I had already been to Costa Rica a few times and I had worked with opossums. So suspension was becoming more of a curiosity to me, and I wanted to start investigating other mammals that employed suspension, but not with a tail specifically, but also with limbs. And the opportunity to meet someone called Becky Cliff came about through a mutual colleague, a wildlife veterinarian who had helped us out with a couple of the opossum studies. And I was introduced to Becky, and she had mentioned to me that she was more of a uh, a behavioral ecologist, and she was interested in conservation, in particular working with the sloths. 
And she was at a place called the Sloth Sanctuary of Costa Rica, and she was doing most of her dissertation data collection there. And she posed to me the question, if you could shake a sloth's hand, how much force do you think they would exert? I honestly did not know. I said, well, they don't appear to be strong animals. They don't look strong because their their limbs are quite long and they're thin. They're not bulky and musculature like you think of a weightlifter. And I said, I don't know. And she said, they could crush your hand if they were capable of shaking your hand. And I said, well, how is it that their grip force is so strong? And she said, I don't know the answer, but that's what I need you for. Because you are a functional morphologist. You understand muscles and how limbs are put together and how they work. I would like to do a collaborative study with you. You know, could we dissect a series of limbs and take measurements off of their muscles and then determine how much force the muscles are capable of producing or how much torque the muscles could produce about a joint or how much power those muscles could generate? So we did this. We did a study with three-toed sloths. Um, this species is called the brown-throated three-toed sloth. And we published those data in the Journal of Mammalian Evolution. And by a back-of-the-envelope calculation, we determined that a sloth is 1.7 times stronger than the average human. And this seemed rather perplexing to us. As I said, paradoxically, you look at their limbs, and they're long, and they're thin, and their muscles are kind of ropey. But their ability to produce torque, which is what we think of as strength, is enhanced due to their muscle in-lever locations. So albeit the muscles themselves aren't particularly massive, their ability to produce torque is, it's enhanced. So that is how we determine this 1.7 times stronger than a human factor. Well, then we wanted to take that another step further, and we sought to study the contractile properties of the muscles themselves, as well as their metabolic properties. So we would look at a sloth, and, and because they move so slowly, most people automatically assume that all of their muscles are slow-twitch muscles, that they must be extremely slow-contracting. And when you dissect an animal, and all these muscle measurements that I've mentioned, uh, for us to be able to calculate force and torque and power, they're just geometric measurements that we physically take from the muscle bellies with calipers. But to do that, you have to dissect the entire limb. The forelimb of a three-toed sloth has 52 muscles, and you're taking roughly 30 independent measurements per muscle belly. So this work takes roughly two days to get through an entire limb and all of the musculature. But it's worth it in the end to learn about these functional capacities that the muscles have. But the, that cannot tell me anything about how fast or slow the muscles contract. It can only be an estimate of what those properties might be. So to do that, we need to know what the contractile properties are. And for that, you have to study the slow twitch muscles and the fast twitch muscles that are present in the bellies of the muscles themselves. Well, what we learned was interesting. Uh, sloths actually do have fast twitch muscles. And that was a surprising result for a number of people because just by the appearance, their muscles are quite dark. They're dark red in color. And most often that indicates aerobic muscle fibers. They're using lots of oxygen. They're rich in oxygen. But no, that's not the case. They have a distribution of slow and fast twitch muscle fibers. And the distribution changes as you go from the shoulder joint all the way to the tip of the forefoot with the digits. The muscles become progressively faster contracting 
to the point where when you're in the forearm, the muscles that are responsible for flexing the digits, we call them digital flexors, they are roughly 50% fast twitch muscles. So 50-50 fast twitch and slow twitch. So the, the distribution gets progressively faster as you go from proximal to distal to the extremities. Well, the other thing was we needed to compare the contractile properties with the metabolism. And the metabolism is just a fancy way of saying how efficient is the muscle at using energy systems to produce this substrate called ATP? Is it more aerobic? Is it more anaerobic? We hypothesized that their muscles would probably be highly aerobic. And that stands to reason because they're so dark red and they use them very slowly as they contract. But we were wrong once again. The muscles are actually predominantly anaerobic. And we tested this with six different enzymes. And you do um, essentially a biochemical assay where you do an enzyme digest and you look at how much of that substrate, whichever enzyme it may be, gets consumed. And you measure that with a spectrophotometer. And then you calculate a, an energy rate, a rate at which that enzyme is active. And so we learned that the most active enzymes in the muscles of two-toed and three-toed sloths were the anaerobic enzymes. So things that deal with uh, lactic acid, which is when you're using your muscles and they start to burn, you get that lactic acid sensation. Well, sloth muscles are actually quite capable of recycling lactic acid because one of those enzymes, which is called lactate dehydrogenase, it's elevated in their muscles. You find the same thing in muscles of fast-running cats, like caracals and lions and cheetahs. That's an interesting phenomenon because I would never think to liken a sloth to a cat. The other thing we learned was that the, the cheapest and most rapid of the energy systems, which is called creatine kinase, we have it in our muscles as well, the substrate is creatine phosphate or phosphocreatine, that that is the main energy source that the muscles are using to produce energy substrate for contraction. That was a major surprise to us as well, because once again, this is more like what you would find in a fast running animal. So they're using the most rapid forms of energy system, but they're not yielding a large amount of energy. So the only way to understand that would be to think about a human lifting weights. I enjoy lifting weights. When I go to the gym, I do a set of five reps or 10 reps of some exercise, and then I put the weight down and I rest and I wait two or three minutes and then I do it again. Well, if you think about the way that a sloth moves, they're doing something very similar. They're walking below a branch. They take a few steps, they stop, they look around, they take a few more, they stop, they might scratch themselves, they might scan the area, and then they take a few more steps. Essentially, they're doing sets and reps. They're intermittently moving. When I'm doing that in the gym, my muscles are using strictly anaerobic energy systems. Creatine kinase and something called glycolysis. We did not find markers that indicated that glycolysis activity was particularly elevated in sloth muscle tissue, but creatine kinase activity was significantly elevated, as was the ability to recycle lactic acid. All of these things belie what you would typically expect uh, a, a quadruped 
a vertebrate, a mammal, to be able to do. And that's, that's one of the things that we've learned about sloths. Besides the fact that they move upside down, and they're one of the few mammals that, in an obligatory way, move upside down, there's no means for them to move above the branch. They have to walk below the branch. They also cannot run. They're not capable of bouncing below a branch, nor would you want to bounce below a branch, because you would risk the, the branch itself breaking, or at least oscillating it at bare minimum, and that's going to draw attention to you from a predator. And sloths really have no way of defending themselves. Uh, a three-toed sloth in particular might, you know, slash a forelimb or two to try to distract a bird, like a bird of prey, a harpy eagle, or some other predator, like a margay cat. Um, but they don't have canine teeth, so they're not prone to biting. They're not going to attack with their mouth. They're essentially defenseless, and they, they keep calm and they hang on. So you don't want to draw any unnecessary attention to yourself as you climb or as you walk below a branch. So stealth in Crypsis is a major ecological preference for them uh, to avoid predation. So all of these things, to get back to your original question, these got me very excited to keep studying this behavior of suspension. And I think we have a good handle on what is happening with the sloths at this point. We have comparative data for two-toed sloths. Um, my colleague, Michael Granatowski, had done some of that early work during his PhD. And now we've combined that with a lot of our work on three-toed sloths and two-toed sloths with their muscle architecture and their muscle metabolism and their contractile properties. And then just recently, we've performed a series of studies where we've done more of the kinetic analyses, where we've uh, collected force data and impulse data on the animals as they're moving below branch, as they're vertically climbing, and as they're walking over ground, which they do this quadrupedal crawl. Where they, where they put all their weight along their forearm region of their forelimb, and their hind limbs are semi-erect. So we're trying to study all forms of their locomotion and understand the kinetics and the mechanics involved. So that work is progressing nicely. Um, we have a couple of manuscripts that have already been submitted to journals for the basic kinetics, the impulses and the peak forces. And now we're starting to turn our attention to more of the mechanics and that, it, that ability or lack of ability to be able to use exchanges of potential and kinetic energy. So that's all future work to come. And to go one step further, I'm not strictly interested in just focusing on slots. I'm actually interested in the comparative analysis or, or doing comparative analyses of working with primates that perform inverted quadrupedalism as well. So we could name a few, a capuchin monkey, a howler monkey, a spider monkey certainly does this type of behavior. And what we're curious about is, is there a one-size-fits-all set of mechanics that any mammal, any quadrupedal mammal that's arboreal may use to perform suspensory locomotion? Or does it vary depending on the taxa or the species? And that's something we don't know. But the preliminary data that we have would suggest that at least between a two-toed sloth and a three-toed sloth, they're doing it differently. They're, they're loading their limbs differently. A two-toed sloth might evenly distribute its weight between its forelimbs and its hind limbs. And accordingly, its hind limbs and its forelimbs are proportional in length. They're both equally long. Three-toed sloths, 
which is what I've predominantly focused on since I've been working with them, they are more Heinlein biased, as we say. And you might find this interesting because that's more like primates. You as an upright primate or even a howler monkey, you're distributing a greater proportion of your body weight onto your hind limbs than you are your forelimbs. And three-toed sloths appear to be doing the same thing. And we've been able to ascertain that by studying peak forces that their hind limbs are exerting on the substrate, as well as the impulses that they're producing. And those values are significantly greater for the hind limbs than they are the forelimbs. So that's already a difference between the two. And that could be directly related to their anatomy. Two-toed sloths have the longer hind limbs. Three-toed sloths have shorter hind limbs. Three-toed sloths have short feet. Two-toed sloths have long feet. And they're more hook-like in their shape. They also place their feet on the substrate differently and they have different preferences for how large in diameter that substrate would be. So a three-toed sloth prefers a larger diameter substrate, and they like to put their entire foot onto the upper surface of that branch. Three-toed sloths like to hang from their claws, just like hooks, and they prefer smaller diameter substrates because their claws can't wrap around a larger substrate like a three-toed sloth would be. So there are different motions at the joints, there are different positions of the feet, there are different lengths to the limbs, and they like different gates as well. Uh, a two-toed sloth prefers more of a diagonal sequence gait, where they're moving their limbs in diagonal couplets. A three-toed sloth prefers what we call a lateral sequence diagonal couplet. So there's a point in their stride where two limbs on the same side of their body are in very close contact with one another, and they're providing the majority of the body weight support. So that's more of a lateral type of motion versus a, a pure diagonal type of motion. So there are a lot of nuances between them. And I would say besides the primates, this is another factor that keeps me interested in studying the sloths, is that the more that we study them, the more that I find that they're different, not the same. And if you pick up any biological textbook or textbook on evolution, you'll predominantly see that the sloth story is one of evolutionary convergence. It's, it's two independent lineages, two-toed sloths and three-toed sloths, and they separated nearly 30 million years ago. Yet, the, the two species that I work with are sympatric. They occupy the same ecosystem. They overlap with one another. That's very interesting that two lineages that have been separated for that long look as similar as they do, behave as similar as they do, and have nearly the same physiology. But I still would maintain that the nuances are more fascinating. Yes, convergent evolution is remarkable, and they're probably one of the best examples of it that, we, that I could share with you. But nuances do matter, as we like to say, the devils in the details. And there are differences between the two, and my goal is to understand how those differences came to be and how do they relate to their anatomy. So I, I constantly go back and forth between the two, the structure and the function. This is really fascinating. Maybe I want to ask you the question about how morphology, intelligence play a role in all of that. The shape of the sloth, the shape of other examples you mentioned here. 
but how the rule of morphological intelligence here related to the story about the paradox that you witness and all these things. How do you think about morphology intelligence here? Um, I, I don't know if I could speak to morphological intelligence, um, but what I could speak to is this. The way in which sloths are moving, the way in which their muscles have been reduced in mass, the type of metabolism that their muscles are relying on, I would dare say that it's unique. We don't often use the word unique in evolution or morphology. I would say it's a novelty, it's unusual, in that their muscles don't appear to be playing by the same rules that other muscles may, that we've learned about from studying domesticated animals. So as humans, speaking to intelligence, we like to come up with constructs, we like to come up with rules. And we've laid out a list of rules by which muscles contract and by which muscles consume energy, the energy systems that power contraction. We've also laid out a simple set of rules by which animals move using specific gates. The two and the three-toed sloths have defied these rules to some degree already. But I would argue that their physiology, it's not unique to them. Their anatomy isn't particularly unique to them. It is unusual by the combination of ecology, behavior, physiology, and morphology, but it's the way in which the sloths solved the equation. It's the way in which they answered the evolutionary question. It's the most economic way for them to move. It's the most economic way for them to pair being a specialist on leaves. Again, not good nutrition, very poor in energy. And to have that as your main type of diet, that is going to require you to move a certain way, which doesn't use that much energy, or it uses a minimal amount of energy. And if you're using your muscles that way, then their properties become modified to provide large force, slow contractions. And when you contract your muscles slowly, you get the maximum amount of force out of them. So let's come back to this idea of convergence. And I think I can maybe expand on morphological intelligence a bit further. I could give you a couple of examples of animals that are not sloths, that are either convergent with them, or they demonstrate what we call parallel evolution. Here's a good example, a slow loris. You would find this animal in Southeastern Asia, inhabiting the rainforest, very similar ecology. Lorises are primates, very distant from sloths in terms of phylogeny and geographic location. Yet, they share similar ecological preferences, they share behavioral preferences, and physiology is shared between the two as well. So what does a loris do? A loris also eats leaves. It predominantly consumes vegetation. It has a lower than normal metabolic rate for a placental mammal. It has a lower than normal body temperature for a placental mammal. It has a lower than normal digestion rate for a placental mammal, and it climbs very slowly. Foot over foot, deliberate climbing, much like a sloth, stopping, grasping and clinging, and then further intermittent movement. This is exactly what I would think of when I think of a sloth. If you had described those things to me, but didn't tell me what animal you were referencing, 
I would have thought you were telling me about a sloth. But in fact, I'm telling you about a primate. There are other modifications in their anatomy that they share with sloths as well. They have this dense system of capillary beds in their forearms. The fancy word is called retia mirabilia. And what that does is it, it provides a, a very slow but constant supply of oxygenated blood to the muscles that grip, the grip force muscles. It also lowers the body temperature of the extremity, and that lowers the metabolic cost for muscles to provide force. So it lowers the metabolism as well. Sloths have these, slow lorises have these. And these are another adaptation or a modification for grasping and clinging, sustained grasping and clinging. Let's take it one step further. A marsupial, a marsupial that lives in Australia, very distant relationship to a sloth or a slow loris. We call it a koala. Koalas have lower than average body temperature for a marsupial, slow rates of digestion, and lower metabolism than is typical for a marsupial. Marsupials already have relatively low body temperature and relatively low rates of metabolism, but, a, but that of a koala is even lower relative to their body size. What do koalas eat? They eat eucalyptus leaves, they eat stems and buds, and the bark. They exclusively live on eucalyptus trees. That means they're a specialist. That's a lot like a sloth. They're a leaf specialist. Well, all those physiological parameters are convergent or parallel with one another. How quickly do you think a koala moves? Not quickly at all. They move very slowly and deliberately, albeit not below a branch. They move on top of branches where they stay vertical. The lorises that I mentioned to you, besides vertical climbing, they can walk on top of branches or go below branches. The sloths have taken that to an extreme, an evolutionary extreme of they can only move by walking below tree branches. And that requires a different set of muscles to be activated to support your body weight. The flexors get activated, not the extensors. So they're limited in terms of their locomotor flexibility. Lorises have greater locomotor flexibility. Arguably, koalas have greater locomotor flexibility. Um, but as I said, they don't move below branches. They don't have that ability. So they're, they're always on top of the tree branch. So in the opposite way, they're probably as constrained as a sloth. And so if you look at the limbs of a koala, if you look at the limbs of a loris, they look more typical mammalian quadrupedal, where there are five digits and there are relatively long claws, but not exaggerated long recurve claws like sloths have. But they're not requiring their limbs to be hook-like. They're not requiring their flexors to completely support their body weight. So they have more of the typical upright primate condition, as we would say, as far as their limbs are concerned, their structure and their function. Again, sloths have gone extremely in one direction. They have relied only on being upside down. And to do that, the limb proportions have to change accordingly and the foot shape had to change accordingly. It became more hook-like. The, the claws are long and they're recurved. Albeit there can be differences on how a two-toed sloth climbs or walks below a branch compared to that of a three-toed sloth. So this is what I'm thinking when I think of when you're questioning morphological intelligence. 
the way that I like to say it to my students is you can take a box of nuts and bolts and I could ask each student in the class to construct some structure and they would build something differently but using the same components and depending on what they built it would have a different function well vertebrates and mammals start with the same nuts and bolts and then those get rearranged or modified over evolutionary time and the end result is it's correlating with a different functional behavior by which that animal makes its living. Sloths being arboreal and suspensory. Alorus being arboreal, both pronograde and antipronograde, it has flexibility with its gait, depending on how it needs to acquire resources. And a koala, again, living in one type of tree, using all the resources from that tree, it has the ability to climb, and it has the ability to walk on top of the branch, but it has essentially the same anatomy as a loris and a sloth. It's just arranged differently. It's modified differently based on evolution and how the animal adapted to its ecosystem and adapted to acquiring resources. So that's what I think of when I'm thinking of the best way to answer your question. That was really excellent. Uh, thanks so much. Maybe I'm going to ask you, do you always interested about the brain side, the brain and their body? Do you think this interesting to you or does it make sense in that stage? Uh, it, that does make sense. The way that I study the nervous system is not directly related to the brain. And we've even posed the question, to, to be an animal that moves upside down, does the brain have to get rewired? I think the answer to that question is probably no, because the motor patterns are there to activate flexors and extensors. The demands of being upright and walking on top of a branch or walking over ground requires you to be supported by your extensors. And I think the brain is smart enough and adaptable enough to know that when you're hanging upside down, you have to rely on activation of flexor musculature but there's still an alternating firing pattern of flexors and extensors for that animal to be able to move. We can do this as well. If I were to ask you to do uh, a pull-up on a pull-up bar, you would be suspending your body weight and moving your entire body weight upwards. To do that, you would be using flexor muscles to lower yourself back down. You would be controlling the motion by using your extensor muscles. What if I took it one step further? What if I said, here's a rope and here is an area that I want you to traverse by moving upside down on this rope. You would naturally choose a position where you wrap your legs around the rope. You would then use your arms to propel yourself forward. You would be performing suspensory locomotion. So when I think of that, it makes me think of the slow loris. It makes me think of a howler monkey where they can seamlessly go from above branch to below branch. And it doesn't require a rewiring of their brain. It just requires a motor pattern whereby the flexors get activated a priori and the extensors no longer become the main muscles of support. But when they're upright, the extensors are the main supporting muscles and the flexors are not. So I don't think sloths need a particularly different brain or a different pattern of motor control. 
It's just it's become tuned for their type of inverted locomotion to make the flexors the stronger of the muscle groups and the extensors the weaker. So as I was about to tell you, I study this from a way that's indirect. We use what's called electromyography. And electromyography determines the activation patterns of the musculature. So we choose a suite of eight to 10 muscles in the forelimb or in the hind limb, and then we have the sloths perform their natural locomotor behaviors. We have them vertically climb, we have them walk below branch, we have them just suspend their body weight in postural suspension, and we're looking for the activation patterns of the musculature. And what we learn is something interesting. I am certain that upright mammals do something quite similar, but they're doing it based on flexor or extensor activation rather than flexor activation. So when we look at the sloths and we look at the activation patterns of their flexor musculature, it's obvious that the flexors are the main muscles of support. They're active for long durations while the animal's foot is in contact with the substrate. When they're moving, they alter their recruitment patterns of the musculature in a way that I, again, would probably argue that upright mammals can do as well, it's just more unconventional to see it in an inverted animal, or maybe it's unconventional because we really know little about the muscle activation patterns and neuromuscular recruitment of an inverted mammal. So what they do is when they're just hanging in postural suspension, they're using a very low level of muscle activation. So the intensity is low. And they're predominantly relying on their flexor muscles of the digits, the gripping muscles. Well, what do they do when they start to walk? When they walk, they're recruiting a greater volume of muscle, and they're recruiting their muscles more intensely. More muscles are involved to walk than they are just to hang. But they do it in a way where they are selectively recruiting their slow-contracting muscle fibers, their slow contracting motor units, to conserve energy. What do, they, what do they do when they vertically climb? They do something very similar. They need a greater number of muscles, they need greater force out of their muscles, so the intensity of activation goes up, but once again, they're selectively recruiting muscles that have a low activation frequency, which is indicative of slow contracting motor units or muscle fibers. So we found that to be remarkable in terms of how they have the ability to modify neuromuscular recruitment patterns based on their movements, but either way, they're about conserving energy. Recruit the fewest number of muscle fibers in your digital flexors to hang in posture, recruit greater number of muscles to move, but selectively recruit the slowest contracting muscle units, motor units as we call them, and by doing that, they get the greatest amount of force out of them. It makes perfect sense when you think of it like that. So these patterns are also probably something that had been modified with evolution. And when I think of how strong an animal is, it isn't just the physical size of the muscles. That's what most people like to focus on. They're, they just look at the cross-sectional area of a muscle. How big is it? How bulky is the animal? Your body, my body, is 44% skeletal muscles. Do you know how much that is for a sloth? 24%. They have 20% less skeletal muscles than we do in terms of mass. 
you would think that would result in weakness. No. Again, they, they have enhanced leverage with their muscles, so that helps them be strong. But they also contract their muscles very slowly. That enhances the force that they're getting out of their muscles. And they potentially have these modified neuromuscular recruitment patterns. And so when I think of strength, it isn't, again, just the physical parameter of the muscle. It's also the neuromuscular aspect. Those patterns, those synapses, those neural circuits that are innervating the musculature to contract. We look at that as the size of the motor units, uh, the number of slow versus fast contracting motor units, the physical size of the motor neuron itself. Those have most likely been modified in sloths where the, where the, the neurons, the motor neurons that are innervating the major flexor musculature, uh, the size of those motor neurons could be larger. Uh, that would often indicate a faster contracting muscle so most likely they're, they're smaller, which would indicate that they're innervating a slower contracting muscle. And the properties of the motor neuron itself, they significantly influence the contractile properties of the muscle fibers. So all of that systematically has most likely been modified in those animals. Whereas in you, it's for the extensors over the flexors. For them, the flexors over the extensors. That's really impressive. We want to ask you the question about um, the redundancy. Suppose that, for example, they lose one of the limb. How they can adapt to that? Mammals and animals in general are remarkably resilient. And again, you could use the word adapted or adaptive. A three-limb sloth gets on just as well as a four-limb sloth. And in fact, I have worked with an animal that had three limbs. Uh, unfortunately, I worked with it while it had already passed on. It was the, the cadaver of the animal. Um, his name was Randy, not that that matters, uh, but we studied his musculature. And what we found was uh, he had one of his forelimbs missing. The other forelimb had hypertrophied musculature to compensate for the lack of the other forelimb. It really isn't any different than what would happen to you and me. If, if one of our limbs were immobilized, in that limb, we would see atrophy of the musculature. If you don't use it, you typically lose it, and the muscle typically becomes more faster contracting. So there's a default for the expression of faster contracting muscle fibers versus slower contracting. The more that you use a muscle, it becomes more slower contracting. So again, that's one of these functional adaptations. I'm sure the same is true for a sloth. So it lost its limb. The other limb probably became more slower contracting and the musculature became enhanced. And that compensated for the lack of support by the limb that was missing. The animal had both hind limbs and those were in normal condition. Your atrophied limb would therefore need to be compensated by your active limb. And you would often see that in your quadriceps muscles, those would become relatively larger. They would hypertrophy in the limb that wasn't the immobilized limb. And that limb would likely become slower contracting as far as its contractile properties as well, due to its enhanced role in body weight support and in movement control. So sloth or any other mammal or any other vertebrate for that matter, this ability seems to be pretty widespread 
and, and well understood. I can even tell you this, while it might be unusual to just see a sloth hanging from a branch with one limb, they, they do do it. It all depends on what type of maneuvering they're trying to do. Um, hanging in a, by a grip whereby their two forelimbs are in contact, like they're in a pull-up position, I've seen them do this. I've seen them move by three-legged support. I've seen them move by four-legged support. So they, they are adaptive in how they're supporting their body weight, depending on what type of resources they're trying to gather or what type of position they're trying to conform their body into. A resting position versus an active movement position. And they don't seem to have any issues with that whatsoever. I'll tell you one more thing. One of our studies involved the properties of the tendons in their hind limbs and in their forelimbs, the tendons that connect to these digital flexor muscles that you have in your forearm. So by the look of them, they're thick. And usually robusticity tells you, ooh, they're strong. These have to be really strong tissues. Well, as it turns out, they're not that strong. When I compare them to other mammals like rats and humans and dogs and cats and kangaroos and horses and even kangaroo rats, they're not strong at all. They're actually quite weak. And we measure another parameter that you might be familiar with called elasticity, which is more related to stiffness, Young's modulus. They're not that stiff either. They're, they're relatively inelastic tendons. Well, what good would that do an animal? Why would an animal have, by appearance, really thick tendons, yet they're not strong and they're not elastic? Well, that tells me that they don't run. They don't have a bouncy gait where they need to store and recover elastic energy. That's more of a, a specialist, like a horse or a dog or a kangaroo. What about the generalists, like rats and mice and humans? Well, their tendons are weaker and not as stiff as ours, or a typical rat. Again, rats are capable of running, albeit they're not very capable of storing and recovering elastic energy. Their muscles are more about power to cycle their limbs more quickly. So at the complete opposite end of the spectrum from a horse and a kangaroo are two and three-toed sloths. Yet... Even though they lack the strength that you would expect, even though they lack the elasticity that you would expect, they're more than capable of supporting their body weight. And we know that by calculating the safety factors. So we did this for one limb, two limb, three limb, and four limb support. Even suspending themselves by a single limb, hanging by their right arm, their tendons have a safety factor of two to three. By passively loading them in tension, they could support up to nearly three times their body weight. That's just the tendons, no muscles, only the tendons. And of course we know that muscles are attached to tendons, they work as a unit. The muscles are capable of producing force, which they must in order for the digits to flex and grip the substrate. But the muscles also modulate tendon stiffness because they're producing counterforce. And by doing that, as the tendons are becoming elongated, they actually are getting a bit stiffer by the muscle contraction pulling on them in the opposite direction. So they're more than capable of doing that just by tendon tissue. 
So I think that's probably the best way to answer your question of structurally, are they capable of supporting themselves by a single limb? Would anything have to change? No. Their, their normal anatomy is more than capable of doing that. This is a really brilliant. Thank you so much. Maybe quickly here, how do you see the relation the, in their body, the softness and being hard? It seems even in other examples, I like this aspect that how this combination, what would happen when combining the softness and hardness in different creatures to adapt to like this example. I don't know if that makes sense uh, in this scenario, but have you ever thought about the softness and hardness in the bodies too? How's this component go together in terms of morphology and representation in their bodies? Okay. When I think of hardness and softness, I'm actually thinking of the biomechanical definition of both of these words. So hardness, how difficult is it to indent the tissue? Softness, it's relatively easy to indent the tissue. Their muscles aren't any softer or harder than any other mammal that I've studied. The muscle tissue feels quite like muscle tissue, vertebrate muscle tissue. Their bones have, we have also studied their bones, but we have not studied the hardness of their bones. But I do think I have an answer that will be satisfactory for you. Beyond hardness or softness, when it comes to the bone properties, the material properties of the bones, we were interested to know how strong are the bones, how stiff are the bones. And we did that as a complementary study to the tendons, how strong and stiff are their tendons. We had a hypothesis that for an animal that makes its living moving upside down in trees, that the bones would have to have enhanced tensile strength. And perhaps that would mean their compressive strength was compromised. We found data that would indicate that is true. Yet their forelimb bones are a bit stronger than their hindlimb bones. I found that interesting. But if you think about how they move, their forelimbs are the propulsive elements. They propel the animal forward, whereas their hindlimbs are the braking limbs. They're controlling accelerations of the body and they're predominantly there for support. So that makes sense now. In terms of bending strength, the same thing we found. Their bones are a bit stiffer and a bit stronger in bending in the forelimb than they are in the hindlimb. So comparing the humerus to the femur. Well, we went one step further. We also studied some limb bones from rats as a generalized mammal. And we studied limb bones from uh, another species or two of monkey, howler monkey and vervet monkey. Well, the primates have stronger bones overall than do the sloths. The hind limbs in particular of a primate, a femur, stronger and stiffer, more like what we think of as an upright mammal. The rats have very similar properties. They're an upright mammal. They're also hind limb biased are the primates, like we talked about earlier. Bradypus appears to be hind limb biased as well, but moving upside down is a different set of mechanical variables to deal with versus moving upright. Yet when we go to the forelimb, this is interesting. The forelimb bones of sloths are a bit stronger than those from monkeys. But in either case, there's indications of possible trade-offs between tensile strength and compressive strength. Now, why would that be important? Well, monkeys and great apes 
rely mainly on their hind limbs to support their body weight. That's when they're upright. You're familiar with knuckle walking in chimpanzees and gorillas. Uh, primates on the ground do these type of gates that are called ambles, and it's a form of running. But they're mainly relying on their body weight to be supported by their hind limbs. So their forelimbs are offloaded to some degree. What do they do with their forelimbs? They grip and grasp and maneuver and manipulate objects. So it stands to reason that their forelimb bones don't need to be as strong in compression or don't need to be as stiff in compression as their forelimb bones or as their hindlimb bones. But what do they do when they go below branch, like a howler monkey? Well, their forelimb bones have relatively greater tensile strength compared to their hindlimb bones. What are the main propulsive elements when they're moving below branch? Their forelimbs. So they're shifting their body weight. They shift more weight onto their forelimbs when they're below branch, but when they're moving above branch, they keep it positioned over their hind limbs. That makes sense in terms of the relative strength between the forelimbs and the hind limbs. For a sloth, it doesn't appear to matter. The forelimbs are nearly equal to that of the hind limbs. So that gets more to a strength and a stiffness aspect of your question. You can relate that to hardness. Hardness could be a proxy there. So we're thinking in terms of the tissue properties, and this is something that we want to do in the future. What we need to know now is what's the relative amount of collagen in the bones? What do the arrays of collagen look like? Are they parallel? Are they at an angle? Does a sloth bone have as much collagen as a typical humerus from a howler monkey or a femur from a capuchin monkey or some other mammal that makes use of suspension? We don't know the answer to that question yet, but what I can tell you is by cross-sectional area analyses, we did um, three-dimensional micro CT scanning of our limb bones. Sloth bones are quite porous, and that could be indicative of the lack of bone material, the, what we call hydroxyapatite, the, the mineral composition of bone, perhaps sloth bones have less mineral composition than an average primate or a rodent or a horse. But where they do have collagen and where they do have osteons of bone, maybe the array of those are different. Maybe they're not strictly concentric circles, which is more typical of compressive strength. Maybe they're arranged differently to enhance tensile strength. So these are questions that we would like to answer in the future. And if I could make one additional reference to that, when we go back to the question of the tendons, again, they look thick, but they're not strong and stiff. What makes them weaker and what makes them less elastic? Is it because they don't have as much collagen? It, or is there some other component of the tendon tissue that's minimized or lacking in sloth tendons that we would find in other vertebrate mammalian tendons? Again, I would like to answer this question, but as, as we hypothesized, it could be, once again, through an evolutionary process that the amount of collagen that they retain in their tendons or the amount of collagen versus mineral composition that they retain in their bones, it could very well be lower than that of any typically upright mammal. But does that mean that it's 
not useful, or does that mean that it's bad? No, it actually means that it's practical and it's functional because they can get away with having less metabolically active tissue. Collagen is the main component of tendons and bone. It's the main protein in your body, the most abundant. So if you can have a bone that has less collagen, that means it requires less metabolic energy to maintain the tissue, and yet you're not sacrificing any strength that you need to climb a tree or to move below a tree branch, to me that makes sense. That again gets back to evolution and it being about conservation of energy. So maintaining the minimal amount of tissue that the animal needs to perform its functional behaviors and support its lifestyle. We've now seen that with the musculature. Remember, they have 24% of their body as skeletal muscle, 20% less than you and me. Yet, it doesn't seem to have any deficit. They're actually stronger than we are. Their tendons could have less collagen, which means it's cheaper for their low metabolism to maintain, and yet there's no risk of a tendon rupturing. The safety factors are still quite large compared to their body weight force. And the same could be true for bone. The bones need to be stronger in tension than in compression, and maybe that design is really one that requires less bone tissue, less collagen, less mineral content, yet it's more than adequate to support their body weight and their movements where they have appreciable bending strength and tensile strength, and they're not risking failure of breaking a bone or bone failure. It's a really excellent question. I would love to know the answer, as you said. This is the answer I think um, could be also inspiring for the robotics field as designing the softness and hardness. Actually, I'm working on that uh, now. Uh, okay. But I really like when you said um, this interplay between the collagen and minerals so that you don't have this kind of fail faster or how do you see this interplay largely depend on what since you say it could be it doesn't mean weak for example or strengthen or so how do you see this interplay this dynamic interplay so structure of collagen and minerals so that we end up with something adaptable but do you think some some context could be weak or <laughs> i don't know i i think i could use a very similar rationale that i used with you before all vertebrate bone is composed of the same type of tissue. The same nuts and bolts are used to build bone. Collagen, the main protein, and then you have mineral composition, hydroxyapatite, which uh, it fills in the matrix, the scaffolding of collagen. It's the way in which the collagen layers are laid down as bones develop, which is reflective of how the bone is being mechanically loaded. We have multiple concentric circles, osteons of bone, which these columns of collagen give our bones remarkable compressive strength. Your bones are much more likely to fail in tension than they are in compression. And bending is a combination of both tension and compression. One side of the bone is loaded in tension, the other side is loaded in compression. All vertebrate bones bend under load. It, it may be by a percent, one percent strain, maybe not even a percent, but they're sustaining bending loads and having to resist bending loads. So my argument is, if all bone is being built by the same types of tissue, 
depending on how the animal supports its body weight and how it moves, some animals could get away with having less collagen or arranging the collagen differently or less mineral content. The mineral content is not the expensive part of the bone to maintain. Essentially, your bones are repositories for minerals, calcium and phosphate. And we can pull them from our bones when we need them. When we have low calcium in our blood, we resorb it from our bones. When we have low phosphate, we can resorb it from our bones. Conversely, we can also deposit those minerals in our bones when we have too much in our blood. Sloths, I'm sure, do the same thing. They're mammals after all, they're vertebrates. But their bones may have, over evolutionary time, maintained a lower amount of biologically active, metabolically active collagen. They may have less mineral composition, hence the porosity of the bone, which could either speak to fewer minerals or less mineral composition or less collagen. Yet there doesn't appear to be any deficit to maintaining less bone tissue. And in fact, maybe being a system loaded in tension doesn't require as much collagen. Maybe your arrays of collagen are more parallel versus concentric. We won't know this until we do the microanatomical studies on the bones themselves. The same thing could be true for collagen. There are multiple types of collagen that you could find in a tendon, type one, type two, for example. Maybe there is a trade-off between one type of collagen versus another where, the, where one is less metabolically active and it costs less physiological energy to maintain versus another, yet there's no deficit in terms of the ability of the animal to use those tendons to support itself and to cause flexion of the digits. So again, this is I'm looking at it more from a cost-benefits analysis, and we tend to do this as morphologists and biomechanists. What's, what's the cheapest solution for the animal to be able to support its body weight and for it to be able to move? And that has multiple levels of organization. It's not only the bone and its composition, it's the tendons in their composition and their morphology. It's the muscles in their composition, their fiber type composition, their metabolism. And all of this correlates with the overall basal metabolic rate of the animal, the body temperature of the animal, what it feeds on, how much energy it gains from its forage, and how it moves. So it's this whole idea of ecophysiology, ecomorphology, and how did this evolve? The energy conservation part is both part of the evolutionary side of the argument and the ecological side of the argument. But all of these things are directly related to one another. Like you said, there's an interplay. It's, this is all integrated. And that's the way that I have to think of the system. It, it's easy for us to think about one component of the system and try to study that in a vacuum and explain our findings, but that's not good enough. We have to relate it to the entire limb system. And then once we understand how the limbs are put together and how they're working, relate it to the whole animal. And then once we understand how the whole animal is moving as a system or, or supporting itself as a system, then we have to relate it to its behavior, and then its ecology. And then we can interrelate all of those factors with how did this come to be? And that's the ultimate goal, again, of the functional morphologist. This is what we're trying to do. So in any paper that you might read from me, if your listeners would like to read any papers that we've published, 
you're going to see this type of discussion in the discussion section of these manuscripts. We're, we're going to go beyond the bone tissue, beyond the tendon tissue, beyond the muscle tissue, and relate it to how the whole limb is functioning and how this might be saving the animal energy or how this might be the reason why this animal moves the way that it does and try to get some type of evolutionary and phylogenetic context to those arguments that we're making. This is really excellent. Maybe since we close the end, I have a few questions for you. So far, it's very exciting to me. I feel, I feel very, very inspiring. But I'm curious, in this um, process of the research, and did you have moments of like, disappointment or the failure sometimes? Yes. In fact, I can give you a very current example of this. In March of this year, we were working in Costa Rica with a, a, a fairly large sample of their three-toed sloths. We were connecting the, or rather collecting the locomotor data, the kinetics that I mentioned before, the forces, the impulses. And to do that, we had to construct a beam apparatus, which had a force platform as the central element. Fortunately, my colleague is quite crafty. He's very good working with his hands and he's a builder. Uh, so we constructed a, a very solid beam apparatus and in the middle we had a load cell and then attached to that load cell was a, a T-handled attachment that we 3D printed in his laboratory. Ordinarily we would just use a steel attachment and then make, make the size, the diameter of the attachment equivalent to that of the beam that we're working with. So the beam itself was built out of what's known as Cania Brava, which is a it's, a, it's actually a plant that's native to Costa Rica. And it looks a lot like bamboo. So it, it's a bit stiffer as a woody plant. It's not the natural substrate that these animals would use. They prefer Cecropia trees to climb. They almost exclusively use Cecropia trees. But for experiments, it worked just fine. So this, this attachment that we have to the load cell 3D printed. One thing we didn't consider before we did the studies was what are the material properties of this attachment? Because what we noticed was when the animals were walking across our beam and they placed a foot on the force platform, the attachment was deflecting. And this is ordinarily bad. You want no deflection. It needs to be way stiffer than the load that's being applied to it. So in going back and watching all the videos, we noticed that in almost every case, the attachment was deflecting. So we were thinking these data may not be usable. If there's no way for us to calibrate the deflection and how that would alter the magnitude of force that we recorded, then the data were going to be, they were going to be thrown in the rubbish bin. We would have no use for them. So we've been working on this now for a couple of months, and we've, we've actually come up with a way to calibrate the data. And what it came down to was a position of the foot. We could not get one calibration equation to work for the entire length of the attachment. So we have defined it into three segments. And each segment of the, of the attachment, we can calibrate with a spot-on force calibration. So the data, are usable. We don't have we don't have to, to think about going back again and recollecting all these data. This was a major disappointment for me 
because we had already written three manuscripts based on this experimental apparatus. And one of them has already been accepted. The other two are in revision. But if there were no way to calibrate the data, there'd be no way for us to correct for the deflection, and then we would have to withdraw the papers. To think that caused me extreme disappointment. And it wasn't for me. It was more so for my graduate students because their thesis work depended on these data. Um, another student who's a former student of mine now working with a colleague about 50 miles away, her dissertation for her PhD depends on these data. So that was a disappointment. But like anything, if, if we bring our heads together, we can collectively come up with a solution. And we've come up with a solution that works for everyone involved. And as it turns out, the data are not that far off in terms of magnitude, maybe a percent or two, which is way better than thinking they're off by 20% due to not being able to calibrate this device. So, of course, disappointment is a regular part of science. But I will say this, though. Oftentimes when we go into these studies, you know, we've done all the background reading we're available, or we're, we're known, we know the available literature, we have what we think of as our initial understanding, and we've proposed reasonable hypotheses. Most often, the data don't work out the way that you expect them to, and that's okay. Don't call it a negative result, because you typically learn more when you learn something that you were not expecting. It helps you understand the system that much better, versus thinking, well, I understand the literature, I have a reasonable idea of what the outcome of the study is going to be, and then you just confirm or you validate what you already thought was correct or true. That's not that exciting. It's way more exciting to have results that vary from what you were initially expected. But for a student, that can be disappointing because they're thinking, I thought I understood the system, now I realize that I did not, how do I interpret the data now? Or statistically, I didn't find any significant differences. That's not exciting. I'm disappointed, but don't be. Those type of lack of, of statistical significance findings, they can tell you just as much as finding statistical significance. So we, we have plenty of difficult moments when you're collecting data from live animals. They often don't perform the way that you want them to. So you, you try over and over and over in any means you can to get them to do the behavior that you want them to do. But it takes time, and it takes weeks sometimes to collect all these data. And experiments don't often go the way that you expect them to either. And this is often very frustrating for students. I've been around long enough to know not to press the panic button. We will come up with another strategy in order for you to collect the data. So yes, science is full of disappointments. It's full of frustrations. It's full of trial and error. But you do it because you're passionate about it. And I don't, I don't have the quit mentality. I don't give up. And I do it for my students. You know, I've been in this career for a long time now. And it's not about my success. It's about that of my students. I want them to go on to have good careers and, and have people in their life like me that help them achieve their goals and, and their positions in life. 
no one can do anything without help from others. So I'm very grateful for all of my advisors and, and all that they taught me and the skills that they provided me. And I try to do the same thing for my students. And part of that is managing their disappointment. This is, this is very inspiring. Thanks so much. Maybe You're the last question. <laughs> Maybe sure. the last question for you. What is your aspiration? I feel you are a great mentor, I think, and, and also you're deeply passionate. And I think sometimes, to be honest with you, it's rare to find the passion if you tie it with funding, if you tie it with. But it seems there's a passion here to answer this question. But what is your aspiration when you, you have this purpose and. Yeah, what is the ultimate goal for you that makes you, that's what would make you, like, I figure out the truth of these things that I'm curious about. My ultimate goal is knowledge and education. You know, what I do as a biomechanist or a functional morphologist, I think it's exciting science. I think it's cool. I think it's interesting. I think it's fascinating. But I realize not everyone shares that same passion for what I do. They think that their brand of science is more interesting. At least mine is very relatable to what we do with our own bodies. We use our bodies in a variety of ways. And I think intuitively we have some level of understanding of our anatomy. And you certainly know when your body hurts or if you feel uh, pain in a certain area, or if you feel uh, some sense of euphoria by achieving a fitness goal, you're running a marathon, or you lifted a certain amount of weight. So you have more of an intuitive structure, function, mind-body connection. And I think that's very relatable with the type of work that I do. Plus, I'm a professor of gross anatomy. And many students who would be interested in physical therapy or medicine or some other form of healthcare profession, they would need to take a course like Gross Anatomy to understand the body, how is it put together and how does it work. So that's the education part of it. I thoroughly enjoy educating students. I enjoy inspiring them. I enjoy sharing my passion and my enthusiasm for anatomy, for morphology, for science, for biomechanics with them. And I think that that comes across every semester. I, my passion never wanes. Just as excited as I'm speaking with you, this is the way that I lecture in front of 100 students. So that's, that's one aspect. The knowledge aspect is where being a fundamental science, scientist is the most important. I often say, I am not going to be the scientist that cures cancer. I am not the scientist that typically you will read about in the headlines or you will hear about some medical doctor on a news broadcast, but I don't need to be that person, nor do I want to be that person. I'm doing all the work that is fundamental to every textbook that a student buys and learns from, scientific papers that they read. Biomedical engineers cannot do their job without me providing data on anatomy, whether it's bone material properties, tendon material properties, muscle properties and contractile properties and metabolism, nor can a textbook can be written accurately without this type of information. Medical doctors intimately depend on basic scientists or fundamental scientists like me. Science is a factual discipline. We rely on data. Medicine is both science and an art. There's a lot of guessing that goes into medicine, but they have to rely on empirical evidence, and we provide that empirical evidence most often. So knowledge for the sake of knowledge. That is the mission of a university. That is the mission of a fundamental scientist. 
I am educating people, not just my students, but people, you, you're a person interested in robotics, yet you found what I did with Sloths fascinating. I hope I've educated you today. You've learned a few things by what I've mentioned, uh, probably a number of things. You may not remember them all, and that's okay. But if I've inspired you in some way to learn more about something that you otherwise would not have studied, then I've done my job. That's my passion. That's why I continue to do this. I promise you, I feel like a kid now, just learning. And I feel more than inspired, to be honest. I'm just telling myself while listening to Thank you. Thank you. After editing, I have to go for this one over and over, honestly, because I really love topics, especially like by an inspiration and you deeply passionate and this was really I felt it so so much so thank you thank you so much you're very welcome thanks for having me on if in the future if there's something else that you're interested in, in speaking about you know, we have other things that we study as well we work with we work with burrowing rodents the opossums that I mentioned at the outset we work with them still as well and um, other close cousins of sloths such as the anteaters and the armadillos are certainly animals that we study Right. Uh, not many people would think that an anteater or an armadillo, any species of them, would be closely related to a sloth, but they are. These are all the native South American mammals, which we call Xenarthrans. Yeah. You mentioned armadillo because did you work on that? I do. Okay. Maybe you have another episode because uh, that's maybe uh, also part of the race of robotics, this, the shell structure, I think, or this right. really for toughness. Right, we call that the carapace. People, you can call it a shell generally, but it's called a carapace. Like a like a turtle has a carapace in a plastron. We just call it a shell. But yes, um, that carapace of an armadillo, it's made out of bone tissue. It's dermal, dermal bone, skin bone is what that translates into. So maybe we can have another episode for this part because I think it will be interesting in the future to do something like that. Of course, we can do that. Yes. If you have any final words, like say, who's listening, do you have any final words, like say, final words? Um, I'd like to thank your audience. I hope that they found something about what I said today interesting. And uh, you can always feel free to contact me by my email. If you'd like to provide that link, that's fine. And you can look for other publications from our laboratory. Again, we work on climbing, suspension, digging, uh, overground locomotion. I did all of my early work with horses. So um, I'd be happy to answer your questions. I'd be happy to share more if you're interested. And um, I want to thank you for your time. Again, I appreciate you reaching out to me.